And Messi is good, I I believe, in a first draft. Nice. I, I just want the guts to be there. I yeah. want really exciting viscera. Hey, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Creative Process. I'm your host, Alicia Peterson-Baskell. I'm so excited for you to meet my friend, Jennifer Barclay. She is an amazing playwright. I'm lucky because I can truly call her a friend. We had our first children at the same time. And while she moved away for quite a while, she came back for a sabbatical. Our kids got to play together at the beach and we got to have creative conversations. This is what I'm always looking for in my life, our creative conversations. I want to know what spurs somebody to make the work they do, how they make the work they do. And I'm always intrigued. So really that spurs my desire to do this podcast as well. And I've heard from so many of you that desire to just be in conversation about the arts, to be in conversation about the work that we're doing and to find resonance with another person, just how important that is to support ourselves and support our mindset in our creative process. So I want to thank all of you for listening and for being a part of this for me. And I hope that you are getting from these podcasts what I also get from them, which is that resonance and that support, you know, that support knowing that there are so many people out there who are doing the same thing you are, maybe in a different medium, uh, maybe with a different focus. It just, it makes such a community and I appreciate that community. So I'm excited for you to meet Jennifer because community is a big part of what she talks about. She is an actor turned playwright whose list of awards, fellowships and residencies is extensive. In her plays, she makes it her priority to create stereotype busting roles for women. Jennifer's plays have been performed all over the United States and all over Europe and have been produced and developed by such well-known theaters as Steppenwolf, La Jolla Playhouse, The Old Globe, Red Cat, the Kennedy Center, the International Theater of Vienna, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and many more. Jennifer has her MFA in playwriting from UC San Diego, which is where we met and became friends. And Jennifer is currently an associate professor of playwriting and performance at the University of Maryland. Please welcome Jennifer Barclay. Welcome, Jennifer Barclay. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks. It's good to be here. Jennifer and I are very good friends, and we talk about our creative processes all the time. And I feel like it's something that has influenced me to start this podcast. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> thank you very I much. I love our artistic jets. And we could drop into any one of them right now, but mm -hmm. I think that our listeners need to hear your background. And I do too. I actually don't think I know specifically where you came into playwriting, what made you choose theater as a career, and what's gotten you to where you are today? I've always loved theater. I decided that I wanted to be a professional actor when I was 15. Okay. And I started doing professional shows in Rochester, New York, where I grew up. And that's when I really focused in on it as a career, theater as a career. My mom went into labor with me while she was watching a play at Jiva Theater. Oh, okay, so that must Rochester. have been that must be the why. reason. That's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that I had to add that in because that's really the core reason. That's why. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I went to college to study acting. I went to Northwestern, just outside mm -hmm. of Chicago. I worked professionally as an actor for 13 years. Okay. I was just laser focused on it. But then uh, my senior year in college, I took a class with Mary Zimmerman and uh, developed a solo show. So it's a solo show creation class that we were creating a solo show out of research and out of nonfiction. So I developed this play in the class and I love the idea of developing a play because I wanted to be really proactive about my acting career. It troubled me that acting as a career feels passive in many ways that mm. it is hard to keep 
developing your craft on your own if you don't have classes you are you put yourself out there at auditions and then you're often waiting for a call and other people are deciding what your path is and other Mm -hmm. people are deciding what the material is Mm -hmm. that you're going to be focusing on but I loved acting and I've always loved theater but um having the show then I knew I could employ myself and I also have always loved traveling and so I wanted it to be a vehicle to show myself off as an actor and to travel around the world so that was my first play it was called Clearing Hedges and I uh, wrote it to play eight different characters that I switched between just on the turn of a dime without changing costumes or light changes, no technicals went in that way, but it was entirely an acting showcase for myself. So you wrote this your senior year of college. Yes. And you played eight characters. And so you were in control of all of this, Mm -hmm. the character creation, the character development, and the person who was who was playing these characters it was all you yes How cool yeah and did you go take that and tour yeah. it okay I nice toured it, um internationally intermittently for seven years what yeah so so I learned how much of character development and differentiation I learned while writing this play so when I first wrote the play I realized that all eight characters sounded the same I was doing lots of research about how different people have written their solo shows. And I was really inspired by Eric Bogosian, who is a playwright, an actor turned playwright. And he used an improvisational method, which then I sort of took his idea and ran with it. And so I would uh, start with a line for one character in the play and I would improvise it and I would record it. And then I would transcribe everything and then edit it down often to just one or two or three sentences. Then I would start from there again and I would improvise. And so I used my acting skills to tunnel deep into one character, figure out their, their verbal and their physical vocabulary. And in that way, I ended up differentiating the eight characters. So I did a lot of development over this, of the script over several years. And I and worked you, with the director. And you, you were embodying these characters mm-hmm. and writing from there, which I think is totally fascinating. And was the director involved with all of that part as well? Or was that something that you did I don't think the director was involved much in the development of the play. I worked with two directors and it was more about the production of the play. Okay. I backpacked through Europe after I graduated from college and had a connection with this theater in Vienna. So I knocked on their door and said, can I audition for you? And I did. And then they called me a couple months later and asked me to join their company. So I joined their company and was doing Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap on on nights and then on off nights I asked them if they would produce my solo show which they did and I had a different director then because I had already developed it some in Chicago I had developed it more in Vienna and then my big goal with it was to take it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Scotland which is the world's largest arts festival so the next year I brought it there and produced it there awesome yeah which is the hardest thing I've ever done before having children what made it so hard the producing was hard. Producing is not natural to me. I am so glad I did it. Uh It was so empowering and it was so important to me. This was a bucket list life career goal for me to uh, perform at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And I'd already been there for two summers before scouting it out, falling in love with all of it. But it involves so much uh, promotion, so much of getting reviewers. So I employed um, three people to work with me to help run the show and help promote the show. And we lived in Edinburgh for a month and we flew across the ocean to be there. And it was, it's just an enormous undertaking. And then to perform this 45 minute monologue, uh, I think maybe it was eight shows a week. Wow. For three weeks. (laughs) And then, and then you finish the show and then you go out and you promote, 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 and then see a bunch of plays, then promote, 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 go to sleep and then do it all again. It was so intense and so amazing. And for me, it was a a one-time thing. Okay. (laughs) And now I am so happy to have other people produce my plays. Nice. (laughs) Nice. So where does that, where does that leave you then? The, that festival, did you decide at that point that you wanted to focus more on being a playwright or not yet I was still so laser focused on acting and had been for so long that it was it took a while before I was ready to let go of that but what happened is that I started realizing that I really love that I could have this control that I didn't as an actor Mm -hmm. that I could choose 
when I was able to have practice my creativity and how and what subject I was able to focus on. And I also, so I had gone back to Chicago and I was having a career as an actor in Chicago and I was disappointed over and over again of the roles that were available to women, which is getting better now, many years later, but it still can be better. I never fit neatly into the ingenue or leading lady category. And I felt like there just weren't enough really juicy, fascinating roles for myself or for all the other actresses who I admired. And so for me, switching to playwriting was partly a form of activism that this was a one particular mm. thing that I wanted to change within the field of theater. Uh-huh. And this was how I wanted to do it. And so that continues to be a primary focus in the place that I write is writing those roles that they're, that they're unexpected, that they issue stereotypes, that they're juicy and dimensional. And primarily my plays are female driven or sometimes entirely female cast. So I, along with many other amazing playwrights, I'm still working to rectify the balance. <laughs> <laughs> I read that. I read that in your mission statement. I was like, I love the wording stereotype busting roles and raw muscular humanity mm-hmm. yeah you know you know how to use those words <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I was I was understanding a show at Steppenwolf so I was I was at my dream theater it's my one of my favorite plays in the world the cherry orchard but I was understudying so I was not on stage I was sort of chomping at the bit not totally practicing my craft I was surrounded by so many amazing people and I had just been to Berlin while I was backpacking through Europe and I had an idea for a play set in Berlin. And so I started writing the play in the green room at Steppenwolf. So that's the first play that I consider my first real play or my first ensemble play, the play okay. that wasn't written just for myself as a vehicle. There were some Steppenwolf ensemble members who got excited by it and sort of took it under their wing and then brought it into their new play festival. So that was really, I'd say, the the launching point was in several steps. And then I started seeing what opportunities were available, like the residencies that are available, Uh that I could go live in a castle in Scotland for a month on a fellowship. Mm -hmm. The world of playwriting started opening up and I started uh, getting more success and more excitement about it. And then went to grad school. And then at, at that point was when I decided I, I no longer had the time to do both to okay. act and write and, yeah. and that I wanted to focus on my t- all my time on writing, but I still use all of my actor training and yeah. instincts and experience and values in what I write. And I still teach acting. And so that I'm able to keep my toe dipped in that yeah. pot so that I don't lose track of those instincts. The first ensemble piece that you wrote, did you still use a lot of you know, okay, get up and try this and let me see how that works or step into the roles yourself. Were you still using that technique or could you visualize it more? How did that work when you first stepped into ensemble writing? Yeah, with that play, that was the human capacity. And I did not, I did not picture myself in any of the roles. I think at that point was when I started developing more of a, an ear, sort of internal ear for the sound of dialogue and rhythm. When you were in graduate school, you were married. Yes. 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 We got married right before we moved to San Diego. Okay. Mm -hmm. But without kids, you may have had a different kind of a schedule than you have now. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's an understatement. (laughs) So what did writing at that point look like in terms of your days and your Mm. month and your year? Do you remember? I mean, it's so funny as a parent looking back and I (laughs) and I wonder what did I do with all of my time I was so rich in time but I think what I did is I mainly wrote at night during that time of my life and now I'm very much a morning writer so that has changed I think I'm a lot more efficient now which I feel like I hear from a lot of fellow parent artists and Uh playwrights we just have to fit it in in tighter time yeah and then of course there's you know the classes and just so much so much else of grad school fills your your time right Right. it ends up being oh and I was teaching right right right. I was teaching right from the beginning so it was incredibly intense and also really amazing to just be able to focus on theater which I hadn't done since undergrad and I had taken off seven years between undergrad and grad school. So in that time, 
I had so many balls in the air of multiple day jobs running around Chicago. And so like to be able to focus in grad school just on theater, just on playwriting was an amazing gift. Yeah. Talk for a second about all these day jobs. Like how did you, and you were a professional actor, you were writing and working on your own work and working several day jobs. Yeah, I was teaching acting, teaching playwriting, and teaching fitness classes. For a while, I was a personal trainer, uh, so traveled all over Chicago. I cycled all over Chicago, and I would sometimes <laughs> teach three spinning classes in a day. Oh, my gosh. Cycling between them. It was crazy. It's crazy. And then I would drink a Red Bull, and then I would perform <laughs> in a play at night, and then go out. And then get up and do it all over again. So of course I was in my twenties, so that was all feasible. But yeah, it was it was it was a great, great life at that time. And then I got tired of it. And then it was nice to focus and yeah, get steadier. Yeah. So the teaching was kind of a through line even then. Was it in your mind that you wanted to teach in the university? No, and I feel so lucky that I got my MFA so that I had that possibility because I am so happy to be doing it now. But no, I did not plan for that at all. I mainly wanted the time to write and to learn and to make connections that would grow my career. But yeah, I had been teaching the whole time. And when I applied for academic positions, I had a baby, a brand uh-huh, new baby, uh-huh, as I you know. <laughs> yeah. And I, I thought I was compromising my career, quite honestly, when I started applying for academic positions. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought, okay, I now have a baby. I'm in my thirties. I need to do the responsible thing. I have this higher degree. I could apply for these jobs. So I should. The glorious surprise has been that my position at University of Maryland has been the biggest boost for my career. That's amazing. That I feel like it's so great. Yeah, (laughs) I feel like it's an artistic home because it's a research one university. That means that my playwriting career is my research. And that means that that was the number one priority for me getting tenure. Uh And so the whole way through the tenure process, all time, resources, everything was focused on upholding, supporting, nourishing my playwriting career so that I could be a better teacher, which I love that philosophy. And it is an amazing balance to be able to be a working artist, but then to also have stability, which is so rare. And I'm really grateful. Is that a route that a lot of playwrights go? Or is that a very limited amount of people who can have that opportunity yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah, I, and there are a few options for how to make a, a living as a playwright, yeah. and most of them do not involve just writing plays. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, so so one teeny teeny tiny percentage of playwrights win like the MacArthur Genius Grant, okay. and they can just write plays. Okay, <laughs> and then for the rest of us, it's generally writing TV or academia are the oh, two okay. biggest. paths that makes sense where you can do both and make a decent living so let's talk about the plays (laughs) and let's talk about well let's talk about not necessarily the plays themselves maybe I want to hear a little bit about some of them but also how you write them because you know that's my favorite topic of conversation is the creative process Mm -hmm. and I know that the playwriting process is so unique because it isn't it's something you write but it isn't something that's meant to be read by an audience it's meant to then go you know into the actors and the director and then be seen by an audience so yeah let's talk about the process and maybe mm-hmm. maybe your process may have changed a bit you mentioned a castle so it was there <laughs> a castle <laughs> yeah that's where I met Andy my husband was in. okay yeah castle in Scotland on a, a playwriting a residency playwriting, yeah it was a, a writing fellowship so okay. there were can we start there <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> there were six writers from around the world all writing in different genres so Andy's was fiction um, and we were all invited to live in the castle for a month so they have 10 or 11 residencies throughout the year 
they close in August when the Fringe Festival is going on. So I lived there along with Andy and four other writers. A real lord ran the castle. Uh, we had a chef who made us three meals a day so we didn't have to worry oh about goodness. a thing. Our lunch was delivered to our door in a basket so that we amazing. wouldn't be disturbed while we were writing. So whenever we were hungry, we could just open the door and collect our basket. There was quiet time that they asked us to respect throughout most of the day until sherry hour (laughs) (laughs) at five o'clock. And we all convened in the drawing room to talk about our writing days. And then on Sundays, we would have the fancy five course meal in the fancy dining room. How many weeks was this? uh, Four. Four weeks. Okay. It was a full month. It was a real castle that had been Lord Drummond, who was a poet used to live there oh my goodness and so romantic no wonder you fell in love (laughs) there's a real dungeon underneath we would go for walks around the castle grounds and Rosalind Castle which is famous for Rosalind Chapel from the Da Vinci Code okay our neighboring castle that we would hike by and we would also hike by the farm where Dolly the sheep was cloned um and say hello to all the Dollies and Andy wrote me love poems and booed me so so that was as you can see one of those things that I thought oh this is what playwriting can bring into my life I think I like this career and how do you get a residency like that you apply you send a writing sample so at that point I've written one play so I I sent my one play and you generally write a proposal for what you would like to do with your time there very specific and you know they want to know that you've thought it through and that it feels uh, achievable and often you send an artistic statement about your mission and your resume um so I've done a few of these residencies now which are they're dreamy yeah are they really productive nice so do you use these residencies as a place to incubate the beginning stages of a new play Yes, generally the first draft for me requires the most specific conditions that I really need wide open time for the first draft where I can write in really long stretches of time. And so, yes, it's ideal to use the residency for that. And then when I don't have residency, I've created my own residencies, which I'm fortunate to have some funding through the university to be able to do it but there's a cabin I love to rent in Ithaca and I go there and I write there lots talk about that I've heard you talk about it before but listeners have not I have this one little cabin that is just like my happy place and it's I all my a good creative juju is just waiting at the desk for me. So when I go back, I just sit down at the desk and it's like this wave of goodness and all the things that I've written living there in the air. And I and I know that I've written a play that I feel good about at this desk before. And so I know that I can do it again. And it's this old wooden desk in this little alcove that's all windows that's looking out onto a gorge. And so it's all trees and you just, you hear the, river rushing by over the rocks so which is just my ideal conditions to to have those windows but also like feel confinement I like the how cozy the space is and then I can just walk out the door and walk seven minutes into downtown Ithaca which is full of amazing restaurants and then there are also lots of hikes and there are lots of waterfalls so in the summer when I'm riding there when I'm stuck, I'll go for a walk and I will jump in a waterfall. <laughs> it freezes my brain and sort of jump starts it. And then I go back. So when I'm there in the cabin on my own, I just write, like I'll get up at 5 a.m. generally is my best writing start time. And I'll write, 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 write until I start to feel confined. And then I'll probably go for a hike around one. And wow, yeah, for a, a few that's hours. That's a nice long time. That's mm-hmm. a good eight hours. Yeah. And then I generally write oh, wow. more at night or I okay. do research at night. Do you go to this cabin with an inkling of an idea? Yeah, I need to have an idea before I get there. The idea building and plot building generally takes me a while. I like to incubate on that for a while and I like to do lots of research so I often like to read some books I have a general sense of something that I want to write about but then I read a lot until I find 
specifics and put myself more inside of the material that doesn't feel so foreign to me. And I find a a hook, something that really fascinates me or that I feel empathy for, or just obsession over. This is all before you've, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So this is all the preparation. And then when I'm there, like when I rent the cabin, it's sometimes just for five days. So then I have to be ready. Uh Uh-huh to go mm-hmm. and so I will generally spend a day or two doing some more ruminating and then I pour out a first draft in three days ideally but that's you know wor- working from crack of dawn till yeah till I fall asleep every yeah day. like your workhorse you're you're just you're going and the second your brain shuts off you go to the waterfall and turn yeah. it back on <laughs> yeah. yeah that's perfect yeah exactly oh my goodness I've that all... momentum makes sense to me okay and then you come back from this this time away mm-hmm. and you've got a first draft mm-hmm. and it's messy oh yeah okay hot mess <laughs> <laughs> and messy is good I I believe in a first draft because nice. I, I just want the guts to be there I yeah. want really exciting viscera Oh, I love that. From there, you can edit it down, whittle it down. But during those three to five days, mm-hmm. you're not concerned about any of that. You're not concerned about it being in a perfect yeah. package or anything. You're just getting it out. Yeah, yeah. I try not to, which is a constant battle since I have perfectionist tendencies. I think that's I think that's very common for a lot of artists, especially when yeah. you're kind of giving yourself that sort of time frame. Yes. It, you know, you can expect a lot of yourself, but if you're allowing yourself to be messy, then you can really dive into something that you're probably hadn't even thought of yeah. before, right? It's like new stuff. Do you surprise yourself? Yeah, that's the ideal situation is when I surprise myself. Yeah, when I'm running on instinct, because if I'm plotting and I have lost joy or I have lost a sense of surprise then the play loses Mm. the joy and sense Mm -hmm. of surprise as well and you can feel it you can't fake that I think yeah yeah it's something I talk with my students a lot about too is how to banish the devil of judgment on your shoulder and it's really hard and I feel like it is something I need to talk myself down from really every day or multiple times throughout the day. Okay. While I'm writing, it's really hard to let go of thinking of what someone else might think about this or or trying to please someone. That is something that I daily have to work towards letting go, the idea of pleasing. And I I repeat the mantra to myself and to my (laughs) students that there is no one play in the history of all plays that everybody loves. And so striving to write that perfect play that is an A plus and that pleases everyone is just foolish. Mm-hmm. And I know this intellectually. And I, I, <laughs> you can tell yourself over myself. and over again, but when you're sitting there writing, but you figured out how to allow yourself to, mm-hmm. to use that mantra to get out of your own head and to yes. just write. And then you bring it back home into your daily life mm-hmm. and then you have time to edit it or how do you go about that process yeah so that yeah I keep rewriting for a year or two or sometimes okay. more I do a lot of rewriting and I often do that with collaborators that's okay. the ideal talk th- about that because I think that's a super exciting part of being a playwright that mm-hmm. I've heard you talk about Well, so the ideal scenario is then to partner up with the director, with a dramaturg and with actors and to hear it out loud Mm -hmm. and then to have a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. You know, the great theater collaborators know that that conversation is not about being prescriptive. It's not about saying, I think you should do this with your play, but it's about honest wondering or reflections or, you know, this is what really stuck with me in the play. And those things are very informative Mm -hmm. to me, to any playwright. And, you know, throughout my career have been developing an amazing group of collaborators who I like to keep close to me, who I really value, really respect, and who I feel like that respect is reciprocal and so that I can trust them with with a brand new play Uh and know that they know what I can do with it Mm -hmm. and and that I can uh, trust them and be open to their thoughts and that it can be really productive and it can be playful and it can be about you know dreaming it forward together has that process 
ever narrowed it down and changed it so much that you kind of were surprised about the editing process and the rewriting process? I mean, there's definitely been big changes as I go. Yeah, it's so hard to sort of untangle and think of specifics (laughs) because it's easy to sort of lose track of like where what change happened and how, how it happened. And when getting a lot of feedback, I think the biggest challenge for any playwright, or one of the most important things for any playwright is to keep a sense of true north of go back to, wait, this was my intention with the play. And so this person might be saying this really exciting, what if, Mm -hmm. but that might be an entirely different play. And maybe that's a play they need to write, or maybe it's just a what if that will fly out the window and that's totally fine. And it can be easy to lose track of that, particularly when you're in an intensive process. And I think mm-hmm. those things can become clear. The sense of true north can become clear once I put it in a drawer for a bit. So I think it's really helpful to like to have this intensive collaborative process. And I think sometimes I rush myself too much on trying to do the rewrites right away. And what I'm trying to learn and be better about is, is not rushing it. And taking that time to simmer on it because Uh that's when things become clearer to what my goals are. Right. Looking at it with a fresh, or Mm -hmm. at least fresh, because it's never going to be totally blank from that memory of writing it. But just having that fresher eye can help you see things differently. Yeah. Even a week or two, I think. Yeah. Or even just switching to a different play. Then I totally forget about the other play and can go back to it totally fresh. Right. You've been on sabbatical now for a few months Mm -hmm. and you and I talked about this at the beginning of sabbatical that you were going to look at a different way of writing, at least while you're here, because your family needs to be a part of your everyday. Tell me about that and how that has gone for you. Yeah, yeah, I've been finding a different writing schedule. And yeah, like you say, figuring out how to better integrate writing into my daily life without making writing feel like this incredibly intense marathon Mm -hmm. where everything else needs to fall away because that's, it's definitely not sustainable for the four months that I've been here. Here, I've just, I haven't been writing at 5 a.m., which writing at 5 a.m. can take a toll (laughs) on one's Just getting up at 5 a.m., period, (laughs) let alone having to come up with something interesting at 5 a.m. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that work, it does work well for me. My brain is ready at five, but then I I would really need to go to bed so much earlier. And that's just not not sustainable with, with our current schedule. So I bring the kids to school in the morning, which gives me a lot of joy and love you know walking through San Diego and seeing the ocean and you know sending them off and then I get to write by 8 30 and I'm I have been trying to stop myself writing before I because I will I could write all day (laughs) but it it also it takes a toll and you know it, it could drive drive me crazy or then there's nothing left of myself to give to my family or even Mm -hmm. to find joy in other things like exercise and going for a hike or a bike ride Mm -hmm. um, in San Diego and exploring San Diego so yes I want to find a way to balance all those things so I I generally write from 8 30 until 11 30 and then I feel desperate to exercise and get outside and then I do some uh, reading, which is often research. And and yeah. I've been mentioning to you that one of my goals and sabbatical is to refill my creative well. Yes. Um, because with the intensity of the tenure track and so much teaching and just like the grind of hitting deadlines, I felt depleted. And I think that's a glorious part of the philosophy of sabbatical is that you are, you're just taking a moment to step away and refill and recharge and get fresh ideas. So I've been really wanting to allow time for that. I've been taking some inspiration from many of our talks, including you mentioned (laughs) 
I do. I think you mentioned the idea of spaciousness, uh-huh. which I think you are uh, really good about allowing for that. And I would like to allow for more of that. Mm-hmm. And so I often <laughs> remind myself of that daily. I think I've even written it on a post-it note on my wall, but nice. just you know, to allow for that. And that's one of the advantages of when you go to a castle for a month is you right. have spaciousness. Yes. Just the rest of real life is an encroaching upon you. Yeah. And you can do the daydreaming that I think is necessary for really great art. So yeah. I've been trying to allow myself time for all of that. Well, and that's important. I mean, it's hard to incorporate that into life life, mm-hmm. but it's so important for artists to both nourish themselves with other artwork and with the inspiration from other people in their field, also other fields, other types of art and take all of that in because that, like you said, it feel it fills your well. Yeah. And if you don't have that, yeah, it's so hard to produce anything fresh or to feel inspired to produce something. Like if you're always in that production mode. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, like I remember that I eventually. Yes. I remember yeah. that in graduate school a few times, just really feeling desperate to stop and to, you know, take some more in. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you're doing that. And that, and then that idea of spaciousness, just, just a little bit of time, like a little bit of time, a little bit of air around you to daydream. I mean, cause that's, that's where it all comes from. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the, the goal and the challenge will be to try to hold on to some of that when I, when I go back to real life, Yeah, which I love. And I'm, I'm so looking forward to seeing my students again and being back and my community and my colleagues. And it's also really intense mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. just, there's much less time. Yeah. And then that, you know, you kind of have to weigh it out. Does that five, maybe the five day retreat is the thing that that makes it work mm-hmm. or you know is it is it available to you on a daily basis mm-hmm. even I've talked about the editing process can sometimes be easier to add into your daily life yes that initial process that you did here in San Diego creating a new play from mm-hmm. scratch <laughs> every single day in the middle of your life that takes so much of your daydreaming of your attention and time that's amazing that you did it and incorporated everything that you did. It's been good. And you didn't do just one play. Two. Two. <laughs> so one of the plays you wrote, and that was your, it was your own, mm-hmm. on your own. Mm-hmm. And the other play that you wrote is a whole different process, and it's with a collaborator. And mm-hmm. I can't wait for you to tell us about that, because yeah. I find it fascinating. Yeah, I'm co-writing a play for the first time. Um, I knew I wanted to write a play about that was somehow inspired by my Irish heritage and my dad immigrated from Ireland when he was eight and came over with his family on the boat and then immigrated to Canada and then to the U.S. And um, I've been just sort of simmering on all of those stories and I want a grant to travel back to Ireland with my dad. But I do not feel like I can write authentically in the Irish vernacular. And so I knew I wanted to partner with someone. And also I'm really interested in continuing to play with how I collaborate and sometimes having earlier collaborations with people. And I've been doing that on my last few plays where I have collaborators on board before I start writing. Early on. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so this is sort of a different iteration of that. And so I approached two theaters in DC and one in Dublin who I had relationships with and proposed this play idea. And then they helped connect me with this amazing Irish writer. She's Irish Palestinian and based in London. And her writing is fantastic. And as a person and an artist, I admire her greatly and we get along incredibly well. And we, over the past few months, have co-written the first draft of a play over Zoom and Google Docs. <laughs> I, I think that is so fascinating. And, and I want you to kind of break down like your schedule, because something that I think is so important to the creative process is just literally the time and the space. Like if you set aside the time and the space, maybe you set aside also a specific task. Mm -hmm. So you've got the time, the space and a task. You called it a machine. I love it. You said (laughs) the machine of of this. Yeah. I totally agree with you about time and space and how Mm -hmm. essential they are. 
And I don't think you have to have tons of time, but Mm-mm. or you don't have like to have designated like the perfect time, space. But yeah, right? designated protected time, and then a designated protected space. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now I'm writing in a closet, so it's like <laughs> anything can work. Uh-huh. You uh-huh. Know, you it's just, just you just decide. You this decide is it. this is this is a special place. And I'm going to set it up as such. Our writing time was at 8 a.m. my time, which is 4 p.m. her time in London. We took some time to sort of generate the idea for the play and roughly sketch out the play and do some research. And then we would open a Google Doc and chat a little bit on Zoom okay. and just turn to the Google Doc and I would write the American character and she would write the Irish character and we just go back and forth. So we, th- it sort of came back to my solo play, yes. Clearing Hedges, where I, I was feeling, I was touching on with those acting instincts much more directly like I did then because I was embodying this character I was playing this character I was honestly responding to what she was giving we had not there wasn't much that we had planned we had a very rough sense of what was happening in the play and then later we developed a rougher sense of what we wanted to happen in the remaining scenes but a lot of it was just a complete surprise and she was giving so much that she she was shocking me with what her character said <laughs> uh-huh. and did and totally pulling the rug out from under my feet which was fantastic and really exciting so yeah we would write we'd write for about an hour and we'd finish a scene and then we'd chat a little bit and then meet the next day that's amazing and so how many scenes did you guys write there might be I don't remember exactly maybe six and then we each wrote monologues in between it's going to be a combination between dialogue and then direct address monologues from each of the characters I love how the process kind of shaped the form too mm-hmm. it shapes the form it's going to be a dialogue and then it's going to be a monologue and it's it's just so cool and then when you follow that form too and it's different you know it's a different play than the one that you would have written by yourself yeah and it's a different form than the one you would have written by yourself so true it's so cool I love it another question because I haven't heard as much over COVID so Mm -hmm. when everybody was in quarantine you also did another collaboration with other artists is that correct and you just kind of went okay here's where we are like so much uncertainty in the world period Mm. but then you know theaters were shut down and everything was at a standstill you guys kind of took matters into your own hands right yeah yeah we wanted to create something joyful and communal because Uh in the middle of the pandemic that is what I was really craving Mm -hmm. of course we're also separate from each other we're just in our own like tiny nuclear family bubbles and there was, of course, so much fear and yeah. death. And yeah. it was so, just so much craving of joy. And so I wanted to create a play that was a party. So uh, I call it a party play. I did. I did see that. Yeah. You call it a digital, interactive, immersive promenade party play. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so the promenade part is that. So in promenade theater, you you follow throughout the space okay the the audience moves with the actors. okay so you might be moving from room to room in a house or or different parts of the theater space and so with this you were moving from a room to room in zoom my director and I basically were brainstorming all these ideas sort of about how to use zoom in really unexpected ways and sort of almost how to break zoom and mm. he layered his design platform of Isadora onto zoom which did He's a, a media design genius. He basically figured out how to break Zoom open in a theatrical way. And so there was a, a central living room room in Zoom where uh-huh. we would all meet. And then there would be breakout rooms and the audience had the autonomy to decide which breakout room to go to. And this is partly inspired by the play Sleep No More, which is uh-huh. a promenade piece in New York, but that yeah. there'll be a scene that just erupts somewhere. And then the actors run in different directions and you get to choose who you follow. And you don't know as an audience what you're going to get. Exactly. Yeah. You might just be following someone as they charge upstairs and then you lose them. Or you might follow someone and then you lose them and suddenly you're in a hospital ward or something and so I wanted to capture that sense of exploration and autonomy and play and not knowing what's happening and a sense of fear of missing out 
but hopefully in a way that fuels you instead mm-hmm. of makes you make you feel like you right, right. Really missed the most important thing. And so there'd be moments throughout. So my play is called Bacchanal and there would be moments where you would choose, oh, I want to go to this room and that room. And then moments where you could switch between rooms, even in the middle of a scene, even if a scene wasn't over, you could decide, I'm curious what's going on over there. And then moments where you could overhear things going on in other rooms or hear hints of things. There's also a section of the play where things sort of repeat on a loop. And then there was plenty of interaction. There were party games where the audience was, was interacting with the performers and the performers were improvising. Audiences must have loved this, especially at, you know, at, when did you guys, when did you produce it for the first time? The October of okay. 2020. 2020. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so, so people were seven months after the pandemic began. Yeah. So people were used to Zoom. I mean, some of us oh, yes. had used Zoom beforehand, but Zoom yeah. had become just part of our lives. And I kind of went, oh, I don't want to watch another dance over Zoom. Yeah. But this sounds so exciting because it it just changes everything you thought you knew about Zoom. Yeah, that was our hope. Yeah, our hope was was to make it fun and was to for it not to feel like you were on Zoom for work. We also played with a lot of I like pre-gaming leading up to the show. Okay. You were given a survey that you had to answer, which helped determine which group you would be oh, okay. in in the beginning. You were asked to dress uh, in a certain type of costume. It, the, it was all based in the elements. So you might dress as the element of fire or water or wind or So earth. people were thinking about this before they were yes. entering yes. into the com- their computer and then onto the screen. That's awesome. And they came in a mask too okay. and, and many of the performers wore masks too which I think is also essential for having that freedom to feel like you can really play. yeah and there was also interactive dancing there was we worked with a choreographer and there was choreography taught to the audience member that built as we went through the party oh how fun and live singing too there was a live musician brilliant brilliant musician and so there are also these cabaret moments it must have brought so much joy to people at that time because I mean that was a really hard moment of the pandemic too I mean Mm -hmm. you know it's all had it's ups and downs but that was a particularly tough time last fall winter yeah and it brought joy to all of us too yeah to be able to collaborate together Mm -hmm. and I was working with such awesome people and really cool silver lining of the pandemic and of figuring out Zoom theaters, we were able to collaborate with people all over the country and even internationally. Oh my gosh, yes. So we weren't limited geographically for one of the first times ever. Is there any advice you could give somebody who is a playwright and Mm -hmm. wants to get out there more and get noticed more? I think a lot of the advice I give are things that I give to myself. Okay. And to my students. <laughs> but you know, when it's like to keep learning. So I try to keep learning all the time. I just found this great list by the playwright Mark Ravenhill. I think he wrote 101 ideas, thoughts he had about playwriting. And so I'm reading that in little chunks and, and learning or, or hearing things afresh or remembering things and being inspired again. So I think that's one way of creating the filling the creative well. Yeah. And that's for any artist. I mean, that's oh, great yeah. advice for any, any creative person. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so much more to learn. And, and with theater, I always feel like I won't know everything about theater until I know everything about humanity, which is of course impossible. And so it is, I love the feeling that it is impossible to reach a top or an end point Mm -hmm. because I don't want to reach that end point, but yeah. And then just, just continually refilling the creative well in that way. And with reading plays and seeing plays, and then also educating yourself in every other way that's not theater and seeing other art interacting with other art talking with other artists it's about process yeah <laughs> and going to every museum and learning things and I think really following paths of what makes you an individual because that will feed your creative work and make you individual in your creative work and then building a community of collaborators is so essential and really caring for that community and I think it's helpful not to think of it as networking, but really thinking of seeking out people whose work you admire. And you do that by mm. seeing lots of work and then by just reaching out to them. 
Mm -hmm. And maybe they'll, they won't respond, but maybe they will. And you'll have coffee and maybe you'll hit it off. And And, oh my gosh, artists love to talk about (laughs) art. I mean, it's just case in point. People get so shy about it and it's such a joy. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love it. And is there, for the listeners, how can we find you in the world? How can we, you know, follow you or go be a part of the next Mm -hmm. performance that you do? Mm -hmm. Is there a place? Yeah, I have a website. Okay. Yeah. Barclaystudios.com. Okay. Which I share with my parents and husband who are all artists as well. I love it. And uh, they'll have updates there. Everything is in developmental stage because of the pandemic. <laughs> um, but things will be will be kicking back into higher gear soon. There's some things in the works that will hopefully be produced soon. And we could find all of that at barclaystudios.com okay amazing (laughs) yeah this has been wonderful just having you in san diego has been so wonderful i'm gonna get mushy now (laughs) and being able to talk about the creative process with you it's just you know as a choreographer and a performer and also a writer in different ways there's just so much that that we have in common and mm-hmm. that I think all, all people who are working in the arts can find commonality with and um, having that resonance it's something that helps to drive my own creative work I'm really grateful so thank you and thank you for agreeing to be on this podcast and I'm so glad you're doing this podcast yeah, thank for you. all the reasons you just said it's such a great idea to be able and I can't wait to hear everyone else's interviews I know I'm so excited too I'm really excited it's gonna be my favorite pastime you know <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much thank you that conversation was so much fun and so nourishing for me I want to share with you some of my key takeaways. Number one, use your art as a form of activism. For example, when you aren't seeing the kind of roles you want to see for women, go ahead and write them yourself. Number two, be proactive in your career so that you don't have to rely on others to employ you. You employ yourself. Number three, find and apply for residencies and fellowships to support your process. They can be both productive and dreamy. Number four, messy is good in a first draft. You just want the guts to be in there. Number five, banish the devil of judgment on your shoulder. There is no one play in the history of plays that everybody loves. Number six, after an intensive process, put the work aside for a week or two. When you come back to it, you will have an easier time recognizing your own true north. Number seven, Find spaciousness in your daily life so that you can do the daydreaming that is necessary for really great art. Number eight, set aside designated and protected time and space to do your art. Number nine, keep learning and filling your creative well by reading, attending performances, and talking with other artists about their processes. Number 10, build a community of collaborators and really care for that community. Seek out people whose work you admire and don't be afraid to reach out to them. Thank you so much to Jennifer Barclay and thank you all so much for listening. I wanna encourage you to go out and see a performance or go to a gallery or read a really good book this weekend to fuel your own creative energy. If you want to share your thoughts and takeaways with me, you can find me on Instagram at Alicia Peterson Baskell. And remember to subscribe and share this podcast with somebody that you think would enjoy it. It's been so much fun and I will see you again next week. Have a wonderful and creative week. Until then.